This is the Sackcloth Conspiracy. It's a podcast about crisis. Crisis in our relationships, our families, and ourselves. In it, you will hear our host, Josh Bob, and a variety of others share and unfold intense stories of crisis, paralysis, and death. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Sackcloth Conspiracy. This is Josh, and thanks for tuning in. We don't want to talk to perfect people who have achieved the pinnacle of success in whatever they've done. We want to talk to people who have faced pain, who have faced crisis and tragedy, who have been shaped by it, but then have found growth through redemption. So we're going to start dropping an episode about every other week right now. And so we want you to always be checking back today, though. Today, we talk to Kent Riddle and his wife, Susan. Kent's the CEO of Mary Freebed, and Susan is on the Guild, which is actually the board that owns Mary Freebed. Mary Freebed is a large rehabilitation hospital here in Grand Rapids, and they have been shaped by a horrific car accident that they experienced. So in this episode, you'll see how they faced it, what happened, and um, how they've been shaped by it. As always, if you have any questions for me or for the guest, you can email me at josh at jsbfm.org. Here we go. So Kent and Susan Riddle are live with us here at JSBFM Studios. How are you guys doing? Doing Super real well. Awesome. Happy to be here. It is a huge blessing for you guys to be here. You know, we're just starting this podcast, so to get somebody that I feel like is going to be able to have just incisive things to say about crisis, about pain, but yet say it in a fun way, in a pretty eloquent way. I can't imagine having anybody else here. So thank no, you guys you're very nice. so much. So um, I guess we're going to start out of all the out of all the important places we could start. We're going to start in a treehouse, right? <laughs> so Kent, apparently you uh, were building treehouses at five years old. Five years old, yeah. My family moved to a lot and built a house. My dad built the house. He was an architect, and uh, he didn't allow me to help him at five years old, so I had to go off and do my own house. You had so to build something. building tree houses, right? So he was an architect. Was he a builder as well? No, he was an architect, mostly commercial, uh, you know, big stuff, but he designed this house, and uh, he did some big houses. And now, not a builder, but he did it himself. He did it with his own hands. I think because he couldn't yeah. afford to have somebody to do it. Well, so what kind of house was it? It was a mission-style, Frank Lloyd Wright-type house. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, very so, unusual. It seems like to have the skill to build a house like that, you have to have some skills. So is he the one teaching you to swing the hammer? Yeah, he was. In fact, he was a woodcarver as a hobby and uh, just loved to use his hands. What did the, what did the treehouse look like? <laughs> Five-year-old treehouse. Yeah, the first uh, treehouse, I actually remember it. I think I took an old door that was laying in the creek behind our house. I remember it was white and all trashed and everything. And then I got a piece of plywood and I got another piece of wood and I ended up making a treehouse out of it. So it was uh, pretty ratty. They got better as I continued to build treehouses. I'm sure. Susan, so we're going we're gonna to call on you to... Uh, to really chip away at his tough outer exterior here in a minute. <laughs> but I've got a couple of builder questions for him. So 
So what is it about building that inspires you? Creation. I love to create and yeah. uh, to, to envision something that isn't there and then, and then make it so. I think that's what it is. So, I mean, that, that crosses all sorts of things that you've done you know, in your career, including Mary Freebed right now. So the, the building process now of Mary Freebed is a little larger in scope than a, a door cobbled up into a, <laughs> yeah, into a tree. Just a little. But it still does the same thing. Yeah, and it's, you know, the, it's, that, it's, it's partly the same thing that drives me there, too. Yeah. yeah. So what was your relationship like you know, with your dad, give us a peek into that. Uh, yeah, it was, it was solid. It was great. I, I was the one of the four kids who was interested in using his hands. So I learned a lot from my dad. Dad was, uh, no, dad was an eight to five architect. He had his own little practice, but they, he and my mother would, uh, volunteer in the community almost every night. So if I didn't see wow. him in the evening, it was cause they were volunteering. Somebody always had a committee meeting, uh, oh every night of the week, either between the two of them. He so, was at the committee meetings, and so you got to go into his shop. Yeah, I used his oh. shop all the time, which was, you know, like a sanctorium to me. I mean, it was sancto sanctorium. He allowed me to do that. In fact, built a little table for me. So literally at six years old, I had my own section of dad's shop that I could call my own. So you weren't playing with Legos. You were playing with uh Yeah, all lathe. sorts. I was casting lead soldiers Passing. and, you know, doing all sorts of crazy things, building all sorts of things. Cutting your fingers off. Yeah. Practically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's what those hobbled things are at the end of your That's right. So you guys knew each other then? We dated in high school. We went to prom twice in high school. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we were high school sweethearts. So what, what drew you guys together? We were friends. We hung out with date. the same group. A double date with other people. Yeah, we were with other people. That's where and we first met. <laughs> and that's all it takes sometimes. I was like folk music okay. brought us together <laughs> see this is what I want to get to with the iPad right so I, I told uh, I told Kent and Susan I was going to play a video for um, uh, on the iPad so you guys will get to hear the audio of it um, only only banjo player you play banjo correct I do yeah yeah so only banjo player that I know of for I'm my I'm not sure I want to admit it <laughs> you do want to admit it. That's the Renaissance man that your <laughs> wife likes. Only like banjo player that I could think of was Earl Scruggs. Yeah, right. He was a good one. Yeah, he he was, was a good one. He was. Flattened Scruggs Grand Old Opry. Yep. Yep. And so this was like their uh their opener. So go ahead and uh, you go want ahead me to and play, play it? that, yeah. Now here's the Flattened Scruggs Grand Old Opry <laughs> show brought to you by Martha White Mills. Millers of Martha White Hot Rise Flour, Cornmeal, and Cake. Oh, that's their sponsor. Now, here's the old boy that does all the talking for the Foggy Mountain Boys. Here's Lester Flatt. <laughs> that's his history. Oh, thank you, Deep Tommy. Thank you so much, and howdy, friends and neighbors. Let us say it's a real pleasure to be back with you. Even that, that inflection that he has. My grandpa's from Tennessee, and so he's still got that inflection you know, 91 years later. gonna make me cry we play this together we play this <laughs> really yeah susan plays guitar don't ask us to play it anymore. we won't we'll refuse 
that right there where he's he's tuning and untuning as part of the song mm-hmm. that's it we play that I, song we play that he does song. That. i've never <laughs> seen that before uh, those are called scruggs tuners oh my gosh yeah that he's, he's using got he, those invented on his banjo. he invented Scrug, it scruggs tuners yeah scruggs tuners you gotta have an ear to do that yeah yeah trust me you picked the perfect song to me that song is kent riddle <laughs> nice I can't believe he you plays just it better that. than I used to. Though I can't believe you just picked that song out, though. That's just is. <laughs> it's awesome. called Earl's Breakdown. Oh, it is. Tell you, I know what we're doing tonight when we I get can home. New, I can never this. do that last lick, though. Oh, but you do that well. Duh. <laughs> you can go ahead and pause it. <laughs> I know we're playing banjo tonight. That's funny. Honey. We're playing tonight. Playing yeah, banjo playing and guitar tonight, and so that's. That's almost that tone of voice you hear in those songs. I mean, it's really it's Americana, mm-hmm. and so Very looking so. looking through a lot of your building, a lot of your restoring of what was it a nineteen thirty? Uh, oh, the first car, nineteen thirty Chevrolet coupe. Yeah, and that actually turned into a ring for your wife. It did. Yeah, I sold the car to buy the ring. <laughs> so, so looking at that, looking at like. You've got a cannon, which I definitely want to come yeah, shoot. Yeah, we're gonna sometime. have to do that. We're gonna do. So what did you say? One and a half tons. The cannon. Yeah. Yeah, it's about two tons. So actually, four having four and a half inch bore. Oh, and just some of the building stuff that you've done. It really is. It's it's Americana. We like history. <laughs> oh, I can tell, and I do too. So, this Renaissance man that you fell in love with. Did you fall in love in high school? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Our Her, first date. Trust me, our first date, I knew I was going to marry him. Awesome. So how did it go from there? How did it go from meeting in high school to married? Like, how did that transition go? In high school, we were very good friends. We were very good friends, and we liked the same things. And our families got along. I mean, he was a Boy Scout. My dad was the Boy Scout leader, and our families did the same thing, so we easily got along. And then we went to Purdue together, and so we had to drive to Purdue. And he totally entertained me the whole time because he would sing bluegrass to me, and he would sing um, jazz songs. He would sing... We'd make up uh, songs together. He just totally entertained me the whole time. And it was just... It was just good. It was natural. Yeah. Um, all right, let's grab the uh, let's grab the iPad here again, real quick. But as we go through these pictures, I want you to tell me what you think of as soon as you see the next slide. I'm thinking it looks pretty bad. <laughs> Um, oh. It's a picture of the the car that the Riddles had an accident. And I guess what I would say is, thank you God for not smashing in the back seat where my son and my husband were sitting. Yeah, I was driving and I had been at work all day, so I had luckily all my stuff piled in the seat next there next to me. So they had to sit in the back seat. And I think the. I think that the roof 
went up like about five inches in front of Scott's head, didn't it? It was peeled back above our heads, yeah. Mm-hmm. It just peeled back through my forehead. That was the only problem for me. <laughs> so it was um, someone had been drinking. As it turned out, right. Yeah. And um, clipped another car. Yeah. Uh, came across the center line in the highway. Susan doesn't remember it. I do. And it was uh, July 10th. It was a summer day, hot summer day. And uh, we were going around a curve and the, all of a sudden this car veered over into our head-on and hit another car kind of on the side because the other car swerved, tumbled up in the air and came right into our windshield. It was an SUV. So do you remember seeing all that happen? Or I do. I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, you know, it just burned into my brain. What are the memories, Susan, that you have? Like what's the, the thing that you remember before the accident? I don't remember anything. And I have been told by doctors that if you have traumatic brain problems, you don't remember like the whole week before. Yeah. The thing I remember before is about a week before that, we were at my uncle's funeral in Ohio. And that's the last, that was like 4th of July or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we've talked about it. And that was the last thing. And I, I, I only know what my family has told me. Yeah. I know nothing about what happened. So you were in a coma for a couple of weeks? Two weeks, I've been told. Yeah, my son was in the car with me. We jumped in the front seat when we realized each other were okay and um, saw that Susan was slumped down in her seat, big hole in her forehead and no pulse and no breathing. So we pulled her out of the car thinking we got to do something. We got to do CPR. And um, so we did, and just on the, in the grass on the, next to the car. Car had slammed into a uh, embankment right after it got hit by the other car. The other car tumbled over, actually over a truck behind us, flew over that truck and landed behind it. It was just a mess. Oh my word! Yeah, the violence. I, I don't know if you've ever been in an accident like that, but it's uh, car accidents can be incredibly violent. I've heard the the sound can stick with you. Yeah, I remember it like yesterday. And yeah. what they've told me is that it's so instantaneous that here we're having this yeah we were laughing joking about my son's socks and uh all of a sudden bam you know just all this happens and within seconds you know we're pulling her out of the car to try to do something i don't know what but so you did cpr we did yeah yeah um and then before you knew it the i'll tell you talk about blessings um the truck behind us was an off-duty sheriff, and so he called for a helicopter wow. right away. As soon as he saw it, he just knew it was yeah. going to be bad, and he called for a helicopter, and the helicopter came. So it wasn't long before paramedics were there working so, on Susan. So having a guy that could call for the helicopter right there. Yeah, probably saved your life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We got some breathing going, and so I guess we had a heart heartbeat going because she took a gasp somewhere midway through this as she was laying on the grass. And uh, talk about prayer. I um, screamed at God, not at God, but I just kept yelling. I remember, you know, show me what to do. Um, you know, in a moment like that, you forget everything. Your mind just goes blank. And it was, I remember literally shouting, saying, you know, if there's any chance, uh, tell me what to do. 
So from there, where did you guys go? Well, we they flew her away, and um, paramedic had come over and said, told us that she was gone, and we needed to go down to the hospital to, you know. Fill he out. told you I was dead. Yeah, yeah, you've forgotten that. And the paramedic so, did that. That surprised. I wasn't dead though. I mean, well, I'm not they were. They continued to do. Yeah, I, I don't remember. They worked on you a long time. It was excruciating long. We just sat on the back of the sheriff's truck. So they uh, worked on her there at the scene. Yeah, for a at long the scene time. for a long time. Yeah, and then finally uh, flew you down to uh, Butterworth. And uh, so we were to. They just said you'll need to get a ride to Butterworth and uh, and you know see what what's going on. Unbelievable. So, yeah, it was. And it, we didn't, you know, the car was wrecked. So um, it's odd, you know, you don't know what to do in a situation like that. And traffic had been backed up for an hour and on this highway. And um, so someone gave us a ride down to Butterworth. Yes. Yeah. So obviously everything happens right then in a whirlwind as far as surgery and trauma and ICU. Yeah, yeah, she was, so Susan was, uh, we got there and they said she's still alive and uh, we were going to do surgery to her head to repair the scalp and and uh, she's getting scanned now and CT scans and, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to continue to monitor the next few days is going to be, uh, is going to tell us a lot whether she'll make it or not. So the prospects probably looked bleak to a certain degree, but the fact that you show up and they say, no, she's alive? Yeah. Oh, it was... So it's interesting. Uh, in Susan's case, um, you know, all the tragedy, or most of it was really at that moment. It was like the big yeah. bang. It just, boom. Everything's lost. And then every incremental improvement was joyful in a way. So it was like, mom's alive. Wow. Okay, yeah. so maybe she's going to be a vegetable, but at least she's still with us. And then, you know, it just continued... Uh, for over a long period of time, it continued like that. So Tell them about. We always so, sort of hung on to the next, you know, positive thing that would happen. Tell them about. This is a story he's told me though about <clears throat> when you told a member of our church about it, and how the poor hospital couldn't find room. There were so many people there trying to support you. Oh, yeah, awesome. a good friend. I had called a friend um, that we know from church, um, and I said, hey, um, he's a doctor. So I talked to his wife, and I said, Susan's been in a horrible accident. I'm going down to Butterworth. We don't know if she's made. It was a super quick call like that. And so she had made some calls to friends from church. And so they started a phone tree, prayer tree. Yeah. And uh, by the time you were taken up to the ICU, which is probably a few hours later that night, so this would have been uh, maybe 10 at night, you were in the ICU. We had 50 people hanging out in the wow. yeah, the waiting room, and it was amazing. <laughs> they said at Butterworth they hadn't seen anything like that. And it was just this prayer tree, and you know, and the message that went out was, Susan Riddle needs your prayer. She's been, uh, she's, you know, she, it's, it's life or death tonight, so... So people came down. It was really cool. I think that when I was in the hospital after my accident, there were some moments like that that I think was almost easier. It was easier to be in the hospital surrounded by people we loved than it was to be home yeah. in the struggle and in the quiet yeah. Yeah. and in the loneliness. 
So some of those moments can be pretty special or surrounded by 50 people that love you in a hospital. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot like, uh, uh, you know, when there's a death and there's all the people that are there to support you. And then, you know, a few weeks later, absolutely. is just returned to life and you're all alone. You know, it's a different uh, thing. Although we didn't experience that because it just continued on in a positive direction. Improving in incremental yeah. ways daily. And I had the kids too. Yeah. How old were the kids at that point? Uh, middle school, high school, and one that was ready to go to college. I think you said that emotionally you guys really drew together and probably got emotional support from each other. Big time. Yeah, big time. In fact, I remember the first night that we we stayed in the ICU. I mean, we didn't go home for the first couple of nights. Uh, I think a friend invited us over to just shower at their house, and we went back to the hospital. So the kids were sort of corralled from church camps and other things. You know, they were in places around. And Oh, yeah, Katie was up at camp, wasn't yeah, she? Up yeah, up at camp, yeah, at Camp Henry in Nuevo. One of the stories you've always told me is that when I was at Mary Freebed, you would pull into the parking garage and the kids would actually race over the... Yeah, I didn't even have the car turned off. They would jump out of the car to see... Everybody wanted to run down through that bridge, you know, from the parking garage into the free bed to see if there had been any improvement from the night before. That's great. And sometimes there was and sometimes there wasn't. But it was really great. Susan, so what are the first things that you do remember? The first thing I remember, it's very mixed. I remember having a roommate and thinking that they were watching bad things on TV. And I remember once my family was visiting and for some reason they left. I mean, they left and I thought for some reason they had forgotten to take my youngest daughter, Katie, home with them. And I thought that these people visiting my roommate were going to kidnap her or something. So I actually picked up the phone and called them. And they were like, you just called it? You knew our phone number? Oh, wow. And that was really weird that I just yeah. so again, this was got the phone and called. eight weeks after she was admitted. Um, we called, those eight weeks, we always called La La Land. You know, mom's in La La Land. Because <laughs> she just, it was gibberish and, you know, really fun. Funny, almost. There were times yeah. we would all laugh together. Yeah. And the laughter, I think, you know, it wasn't really that funny, but it was more about wow, she's using gibberish now. Yeah. Laughter in those moments, just like being able to decompress. Yeah. Through that. Sometimes you laugh in the most inappropriate of times, too. I remember after our daughter died, we didn't laugh for a couple days. But I remember having this huge belly laugh with family and my wife and almost feeling guilty for it. Right, right. Mm -hmm. But just it feeling... So good and cleansing. The night of the accident at the ICU as we were going in to see Susan and, you know, dealing with all this stuff. And uh, I was very sarcastic, you know, just cracking jokes and constantly. And it was just, you know, I look back on it and I thought, why? And I think some people looked at me and like, what is going on? And, yeah. and, you know, they knew I was distraught, but it was just a coping mechanism probably. Yeah. You know? And I think that, we need to give we need to give grace to each other in those moments too. I think that's something that we've learned out of our story is that the only way to preserve family relationships or family 
ties, like interpersonal relationships, is to give each other lots of grace. Couldn't agree more. Um, we the, have a friend who does that so perfectly and did it for us. This is, I've been told anyway, yeah. that he just came and sat in yeah. the waiting room. Steve Marshall, talking about grace. Wow. Um, I knew Steve. He was a member of our church. Good friend. He does this. He does this for people that need him to do this. And he would just sit for hours. He's an attorney. He would so sit for great. hours. He brought a backpack gammon game. I had never played backgammon. He said, I said, I don't know how to play backgammon, Steve. And he said, well, I'll just be here with my board just yeah. if, you, if you need me. And he'd be there. It was amazing. It's biblical. Yeah, he just, yeah. The Jews still do this. It's called the sitting Shiva. Hmm. And they'll go and they'll sit for a week after a death, really not have to talk about much, sometimes just sit quietly. I'm going to give you guys a, a t-shirt when you leave here today. It says sackcloth. And so for us, we wanted to figure out, you know, biblically they would wear sackcloth, cover themselves with ashes. And there was nothing after, after Ava died, there was no sackcloth to wear. So we ended up making shirts that say sackcloth. And it's just kind of a way to be able to reflect on mourning, reflect on loss, just even with what, you know, with what we wear. So, so looking at, you know, that tragedy at those moments of, those moments of pain, there still must be times where, you know, you reflect on, you know, the classic, why do bad things happen to good people? Sure. You know, um, Susan, will you pick this quote up? This is a C.S. Lewis quote. Will you pick that up and read it? We can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So it's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So my question then is, what did the accident, you know, subsequent tragedy and struggle that you still deal with, you know, what has God spoken to you in that? What I f feel I have learned, I've had my moments of total whining and complaining about not being able to drive and having to have Kent drive me everywhere. Sure. And not being able to recognize people. Like if I see you tomorrow at the grocery store, I, other than the fact that you're in a wheelchair, I won't, it's like I have never seen you before. Yeah. But I might recognize you because of that, obviously. Yeah. But. Well, lucky me then. <laughs> I whine about things like that. But basically what I believe I have learned is that I concentrate on the wonderful things in life. Life is awesome, and I'm here to use it and enjoy it and live it. And I think about the people who are a lot worse off than I am. People at Mary Freebed who have lost so much and are trying to get their lives back. And people who, like maybe the people we're talking to today, some of them, yeah, who I don't know 
and and are trying to find that happy route in life. I like to think about the good things. I mean, even when I was at Mary Freebed and Dr. Bloom, my doctor, said, oh, Susan, you should go to the um, Brain Injury Association of Michigan. And just because it's a lot of people with traumatic brain injuries and, and you would, you know, could meet different people. And I'm like, I don't want to think about me being someone with a traumatic brain injury. I want to think about me being a regular person. Yeah. I didn't want to think about the negative side. I want to think about life. Yeah. I am just very much focused on who I am now and making that a good person yeah. who is trying to help other people. That's why I'm going to school now. I mean, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to school at GRCC to be an occupational therapy assistant because I've had so much occupational therapy myself and I've raised four kids and told four kids how to take baths and eat and get dressed and yeah. all that stuff. So I can do that stuff. And that's what I think is, frankly, working at Mary Freebed and helping people whose lives are in the doldrums yeah. and helping them learn to get back into that positive outlook on life. That's what my, I believe that's a mission. I believe that's what this whole thing I tell you, I tell myself that all the time. I believe, I don't believe that God caused a crash or anything, but I believe he makes awesome things happen from bad things. Absolutely. And I totally believe that this is my mission is to go and give other people life. That's powerful. Can't what to make you think to see her, to see her say that. Mm, I'm smiling. Yeah, <laughs> that's wonderful. And it's very true. Yeah. Speaking the truth. And I think it's great that it's not, it's not focused on you either. So, you know, your doctor said you ought to go be, be a part of this association. So not only are you not focusing on a negative, you know, aspect of you, you're not even focused on you. You're focused on others. Because I'm in a wonderful place. I'm so happy. I want... Other people just feel what I feel. Absolutely. Can you can you hand that to your husband? It's my turn. So you played you played right into my hand, Susan. <laughs> because this verse in Second Corinthians is really it's really our our ministry's mission. So Kent, go ahead and uh, go ahead and read that. This is from Paul. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in your patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Patient endurance. Patient endurance, yep. Which is hard for humans to do. You know, I used to view I used to view blessing 
as like this, you know, supernatural God pixie dust that he sprinkles down on us. And I can remember from the time I was born up until we thought in 2002 that having a son born with autism was going to be our lot in life. That was going to be our, you know, challenge. Yep. It was going to be our burden that we had to carry. And then, you know, Ava dies in 2005. And I remember thinking, God, um, what is blessing? I mean, you say all throughout the scripture, you're going to you know, bless me as a believer. This certainly isn't blessing. And when you have to view that from your own perspective, you finally have to view um, some significant pain. Obviously, it changes. When other people are going through it, you can have one kind of worldview and one idea of why it happens. But all of a sudden, you're going through it. And so I was like, God, I can be, you know, I could be a lawyer right now. I'm not a lawyer because I gave that up for you. Um, you know, and I understand that this church that we're working at right now, I can't make a big paycheck right now. I'm, I'm doing all this sacrificing for you. So what are you doing for me? Because if you're having my daughter die, then my actions certainly aren't producing good actions on your part. So I'm just going to do a little bit more of what I want to do. And you just continue to do whatever your plan was in the first place. You know, so that's what my view of blessing changed from and changed into. As far as takeaways for you, Kent, what is this? What has this taught you? What have you learned? So um, <clears throat> my benchmark that I started with would have been a very hardworking, impatient uh, uh, husband, father, uh, who was taught to slow down and be more patient. And, uh, and so I've gone through a lot of change since then, too. Some of it is when I took Susan home from Mary Freebed, I called a friend and I said, I'd like to give back. I'm going to miss this place. It's yeah. the people. The people are just extraordinary, um, the culture there. And so I said, you know, I'll cut the grass. I'll be on a committee. I'll be on the board. Whatever you, I didn't even say what, be on the board, but I was asked to be on the board then. And so I was on the board as a volunteer for a number of years and ended up chairing the board. And, and so all this was an outgrowth of this accident, this really tragic yeah. thing. And um, it was fun to be part of it. And I was kind of ready to step down. And um, at an inflection point in the history of Mary Freebed, uh, when the CEO was retiring, I uh, was asked to become the CEO, which was shocking to me. In fact, I argued for 30 minutes that I shouldn't be, and <laughs> I wasn't qualified, and they were crazy, and we should go find somebody you know more qualified. But anyway, in taking it, I'm, you know, in the ensuing five years, I've realized I've come to realize that this was God's way of saying, okay, now you can sort of provide comfort to others based on uh, you know your in-depth passion for not only this institution but for what it does for people so I see it as just a like Susan said you know God makes great things happen out of bad things if you open up to it and I guess I was just open to it and so great things are happening all be you know that probably wouldn't be happening if Susan hadn't been you know put in this situation and our family hadn't been 
Susan, so were you um, were you part of the guild before Kent? You were part of the board of directors? I joined the guild about two years after I graduated from Mary Freebed. That's when you get out, you graduate. Yeah. And Kent was the chairman of the board at that time. Right near when she got out of Mary Freebed, you wanted to know how to give back. Yeah. I called literally the day I was, I was driving her home, and I called really? her on my cell phone. I called a friend that I knew volunteered there, and I said, hey, if, I'm, I'm not leaving this place. you got to tell me what I could do to so give you back. So knew, you knew you were going to miss it. Yeah. It's yeah. very fascinating. Sometimes you're called to call. Yeah. It's like you feel like you have to do it. Yeah, we feel like this is our ministry. I mean, for us, uh, we feel like we're absolutely called to this. Susan to the Guild, me to this job, uh, and Susan now into occupational, occupational therapist at the age of 58. You know, yeah. she's going to school. And um, so for us, it's it's a calling. It's amazing. But let's say that somebody just wants to get involved, wants to support Mary Freebed. What are some ways that they could do that? They can do it in two ways. Uh, they can come and volunteer. We're always looking for volunteers. And volunteer volunteering there is awesome. It yeah, is we, so wonderful to be with the patients and and just talk and smile and encourage. It's a place of peace. Mm-hmm. Very much a place of peace. Sometimes people ask me, they say, is it a sad place? I say, oh, oh no. no, it's the opposite of that. Yeah. It's a, a very happy place. Everybody there is getting better and, you know, getting more function and more independence and more, they have more hope than they had the day before. Yeah, it's yeah. a very happy place. Yeah, so they can volunteer um, or they could give, they can donate. Um, both opportunities are on our website, maryforbed.com website, and um, you can easily push a button and get to either one, either way. Or if you don't use, I mean, there are a lot of people who don't use computers and you're welcome to just go Stop to the front by. desk too yeah. and say, yeah. hey, how can I help? Yeah. Yeah. We have one of our uh, great volunteers who's there uh, three days a week now and he had never been to Mary Freebed, knew some people that had. Um, he stopped off at another hospital and they said, eh, we don't have a lot for you to volunteer. He was retired, came over to Mary Freebed and he just has, he's like me, he's become smitten with it. He can't leave. Smitten. That's hey, a great way to put it. Yeah, it's true. Well, it's, I think it's ultimately smitten with what, you know, being part of people's lives, coming back from some tragedy, uh, or, you know, even, you know, we have a lot of uh, ch- children's with, children with birth defects. And, you know, you just, you're always starting at some ground zero, and then you're building back from there. And that's what people love to be around, because there's joy in it, and there's laughter, and there's... Uh, just lots of uh, tremendous opportunity to, to see, you know, improvement in people's lives. So in closing, any any thoughts that we've kind of touched on, you guys didn't get to say something you thought of? or You know, um, I would say that because of the way this all started, I don't feel like, um, and I didn't ask for the job, as an example, yeah. or Susan didn't ask for this accident to happen, but, but um, we've really, you know, back to you know what Paul wrote in Corinthians, Second Corinthians. I think that um, you know our kids are grown. We got kids in Colorado, kids in California, and so at this point in our life, there's nothing we'd rather do than we sort of are giving back, I guess, 
based on Susan's recovery and the, yeah. and, you know, and sort of what's transpired. And, um, so every day I wake up, I, I don't, get, I'm not stressed about my job because I'm not in control. I feel like I'm just a pawn. Yeah. Which is comforting. And I me. would like to say that I have a, a few issues now. They're very minor, but I still have a few issues. But I feel the way to get past those things is to go work and help people who are far worse off than yourself. Yeah. And help them get their lives back. Even yeah. not perfect, their lives may not be perfect when they get back, but at least they're, you're improving them and you're working for, for someone else. It's just a way to, to not concentrate about your own problems. Absolutely. It's something that I suggest to people um, that are going through any sort of tragedy or pain or stress or depression is you're not going to get out of your stuck spot by continually thinking, how am I going to get out of my stuck spot? Exactly. You go and like just put the perspective on on somebody else. Exactly. And I think that that's what anybody listening to this podcast could take away from this podcast as well. Well, I guess it's it's safe to say that your attitude towards towards Mary Freebed has gone beyond smitten, and it's now probably to a full-blown love affair for you. And you can tell by the culture at the place and just your listening ear, the fact that we met while I was inpatient and just had some suggestions to make. I rolled down there with my smelling like the hospital floor. Yeah, right into my and, office. And you're like, hey, here's this buck kid. Got some suggestions. I've been hearing about all these years. Got some suggestions to make, and it's uh, it's turned into a, a friendship, which it I sure really has. appreciate you guys. So do I. I appreciate Very you much. guys showing up today. Right at about 29 minutes and 50 seconds, Susan says, I don't believe that God caused the crash, but I believe that he makes awesome things happen from bad things. And this is my mission to bring other people life. And that is why uh, Kent and Susan, their heart is just like our heart for our ministry. So just for your info, uh, we have an annual party happening on June 22nd called Celebrating the Year. We're going to spend an evening together with music and videos and friends with heavy appetizers, which means it's going to be like a meal. And um, we're going to have a chance to celebrate everything God has done this year in our ministry. And there might still be a few spots open for that. So if you have any interest in going to this free event, email me at josh at jsbfm.org. So thanks for listening to an episode of the Sackcloth Conspiracy, where all your dreams come true by clicking your heels together three times. (laughs) Oh, that radio voice sounded hilarious. Anyway, so uh, subscribe to us and share with all your friends. All right, guys. See you later.